Once again, I want to thank the Mash for giving me this special schus of speaking for the guys. I hope that these will be words from the heart and that they will enter yours. Many of the things I will say you've probably heard already, but as you know, it's not enough to know, but one must also internalize the lessons that he learns. This will help him to live his life according to these lessons. The way to internalize is to constantly go over the same point many times. <coughs> Rabbi Mordechai Friedlander Shlita, the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivas Or Chadash, once apologized for reiterating a certain point by telling a parable. He said it is more effective if you knock one nail in ten times than knocking ten nails in each one time. Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz writes of a very effective way to merit a good year. In his Sichot Musa, in the Hebrew edition, the year 5732, page 141. It's also found in the Lekach Toiv, Devarim, the first volume, page 231. He discusses at length the special way that Hashem acts with us. Hashem acts with us, midah connected midah, measure for measure. As the Gemara in Shabbos, Kufnunal of Amid Beis, 151b, says, one who has mercy on people will receive mercy from Hashem, from heaven. And one who doesn't have mercy on people will not receive mercy from heaven. So if we will have mercy on others, then Hashem will have mercy on us and grant us a good year. We can also go a step further and point out that many times we feel that the other person doesn't deserve our mercy or will lose something by it. We have to realize that if we have mercy despite the unworthiness of the recipient, then Hashem will have mercy on us despite our own unworthiness. I'm going to start off with an amazing story that I read recently that gives us an idea to what extent we should have mercy on others. This was said at the graduation of a certain school. I wonder if you heard what happened at the Seattle Special Olympics a few years ago. For the 100-yard dash, there were nine contestants. All of them were so-called physically or mentally disabled. All nine of them assembled at the starting line. At the sound of the gun, they took off. But one little boy stumbled and fell and hurt his knee and began to cry. The other eight children heard the boy crying. They slowed down, turned around, saw the boy, and ran back to him. Every single one of them ran back to him. One little girl with Down syndrome bent down and kissed the boy and said, This will make it better. The little boy got up, and he and the rest of the runners linked their arms together and joyfully walked to the finish line. They all finished the race at the exact same time. And when they did, everyone in the stadium stood up and clapped and whistled and cheered for a long, long time. People who were there are still telling the story with obvious delight. And you know why? Because deep down we know that what really matters in this life is much more than winning for ourselves. What really matters is helping others to win too even if it means slowing down and changing our course now and then. Till here is the story. What a Musa Haskell, an ethical lesson this should be for us. How many times do we do things for ourselves without taking into consideration how it will affect others negatively? We feel that our advancement can justify the negative effect it will have on others, especially since we don't really mean to hurt others. 
You are all familiar with the many stories of the great sages like Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who even for a mitzvah would not allow hurting someone else. His classic warning was, even when you're running to shul for Kol Nidre on Yom Kippur, be careful not to step on someone's foot or knock somebody down. I'm going to relate a story that shows us just how much one Jew, not necessarily a great sage, how he could be sensitive to another Jew's feelings. The Pesach Kron in his book, Along the Maggot's Journey, page 110 to 112, brings a story that was related by the Blue Jeva Rebbe Zatzal, Rabbi Yisrael Spira. There was a chassid named Rav Mendel Wiener, who was a devoted follower of Rav Moshe Haaretz of Rav Zadav. Rav Mendel was a wealthy man and known for his philanthropy, but sadly he had no children. Every year the Rebbe Rav Mendel would spend... Every year, Reb Mendel would spend Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur with his Rebbe and ask the Rebbe to bless him with children. Though the Rebbe blessed him, he still remained childless. One summer, of Mendel, one summer, of Mendel was traveling on business and stayed over at the inn in a small Polish town. Over there, he met Rob Horowitz's brother, Reb Meir, the Rebbe of Jikov. Reb Mendel unburdened himself to Reb Meir about how depressed he was that he had not been blessed with children. Come to me for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, said Reb Meir. I know I can help you be blessed with a son. For days afterwards, Reb Mendel was in a quandary. He had gone so many years to his own Rebbe. How could he now go and insult his Rebbe by going to the Rebbe's brother instead? On the other hand, he had gone so many years without a child. And the Rebbe's brother, Reb Meir, said that he could be helpful. So how could he not go? Reb Mendel decided to bring the problem to his own Rebbe, Rav Moshe, and discuss it with him. The Rebbe replied, My brother, Rav Meir, is a great tzaddik, a very righteous person. If he feels that he can help you, then by all means you should be with him for the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Go with my blessings, and may Hashem be with you. That Rosh Hashanah of Moshe's shul was filled to capacity with people from near and far. As he looked around, he was astounded to see Reb Mendel. Why had he not gone to Zikr? The Rebbe had his attendant to summon Reb Mendel. And the Rebbe asked him, Reb Mendel, I thought we had agreed you would go to my brother for Rosh Hashanah. What are you doing here? I was thinking about it, Rebbe, replied Reb Mendel. Everyone knows that I come to you every year. They all assume that I always ask you for the blessing of children. If I were to go to Reb Meir this year and indeed be blessed with a child, people might say that your brother is greater than you are. For he could help me and you couldn't. I could not have it on my conscience that because of me you should be regarded lightly by anyone. For that reason, I chose to come here. The Rebbe looked at Reb Mendel lovingly and said, My dear Reb Mendel, for this alone... You deserve to have a child this year. And that year, Reb Mendel's son, Yassel, was born. The blues of a Rebbe who related the story concluded, that is why my grandfather, the Tzfilat Tzadik, gave special honor to Yassel. His father's loyalty was legendary, and his son was living proof of Hashem's approval. I hope that if we know to what extent we really should be sensitive, maybe we will at least try to be more sensitive on our own level. If we will only make a serious effort, then Hashem will surely help us to reach our goal. Remember, the more we are considerate of others, the more Hashem will be considerate of us. 
I want to now talk about the importance of our words and actions. Even when they seem to be insignificant and of little value, in the Torah way of looking at things, it can be very worthwhile and very beneficial for us as well as for others. We downplay our actions and think that we're not really accomplishing much. The Mesilis Yesharim, the path of the Jasper of Moshe Chaim Latzato in the first chapter, explained that for every minute difference in how a mitzvah is done, there's a tremendous proportionate reward, which we will see in Olam Haba. Every small action that we do for the sake of Torah and mitzvahs has a tremendous impact on our status in Olam Haba. Consider the following story. Rav Pesach Kronin in his book, In the Footsteps of the Maggid, page 160, brings a beautiful story about the Rosh Hashiva of Rav Chaim Berlin, Rav Yitzhak Hutner of Zechat Samet Lebrocha. A taxi was arranged to take the Rosh Hashiva and one of his students to a bris. When they saw the taxi driver's identity plate with a Jewish-sounding name on it, they realized he must be Jewish. Meanwhile, in the front seat, when the cab driver realized that one of his passengers was a prominent rabbi, he reached over to his right and put on his cap over his bare head as an act of respect for the Rosh Hashiva. Rav Hutna turned to his Talmud and said in Hebrew so that the driver shouldn't understand, Miyodea kama olam haba yeshlo al azu. Who knows how much merit in the world to come he will get for this small act. The Talmud didn't think that this small sign of respect was so significant, so he asked Rav Hutna, does it really merit Olam Haba? Thereupon Rav Hutna related the following story. The Chedushi Arim, Rav Yitzchak Mea Alta, one of the previous rabbis of Gur, had a custom to go to the Mikra every day. His attendant noticed that he always took the longer route to the Mikra rather than the shorter one, but he never asked him why. Finally, one day his curiosity overcame him, and he asked the Rebbe why he purposely seemed to go the long way to get to the mikvah. The Chudushi Arim answered, When we go this way, we pass the station where Jewish porters unload the heavy packages for travelers. These porters are very simple, non-religious people. They do not pray, nor do they learn Torah. However, when they see me, they stop what they're doing, straighten up, and they call to each other, Rabbi Shemayer is coming, the Rebbe Rabbi Shemayer is coming. As I pass by, they nod their heads respectfully and acknowledge my presence. For this display of covet of Torah, their honor of the Torah, they will get Olam Haba. I know they have no other way of earning it, so I walk this way every day to give them that opportunity. Of course, we learn from this the great Abbas Yisrael, the love and sensitivity for fellow Jews, even the non-observant ones that the Rebbe had. But we can also see another important point. We must not underestimate the small acts that we do, nor the seemingly simple acts that others do. There is a common problem that I speak about often. That is when we realize how far we have strayed, and we reflect on how high the mountain is that we have to climb to do a proper tshuva. We give up before we start. We feel, how can we climb all the way up? And if we can't climb all the way up, then what use will it be to do only part of it? I will answer these questions with two stories. There was a fellow who saw a local native by a Mexican beach who kept leaning down, picking something up and throwing something in the water. When he got closer, he noticed that the native was picking up the starfish. 
that had been washed up on the beach. And one at a time was throwing them back in the water so they shouldn't die. The fellow told his native that he was wasting his time because there must be thousands of starfish on this beach as well as other beaches all along the coast. You can't possibly get to all of them. Can't you see that you can't possibly make a difference? The local native smiled, bent up, bent down, and picked up yet another starfish. And as he threw it back into the sea, he replied, Well, it made a difference to that one. This explains that even if we can't accomplish everything, every little thing that we do accomplish makes a very big difference. In fact, the mere fact that we are trying to do something shows Hashem that we care and are concerned about being better Jews. And Hashem is very patient. As long as He sees that it bothers us and we're making an attempt that can help us to merit a good year. There's a beautiful parable I saw from Jonathan Rietti that will answer the question of how can I ever reach the very top of the mountain. He tells of a king who had a daughter and wanted to find a suitable husband for her. He devised a contest to find the mightiest warrior. He had a palace with a hundred flights of stairs. He said whoever can climb all hundred flights and reach the top within an hour will get his daughter as a wife. Naturally, all the mighty warriors tried, but they all failed. When they reached the 30th floor and saw they only had a half hour to go for the next 70 floors, they gave up and came right down. Finally, one fellow decided that come with May, he would not give up. He didn't know if he would reach the top by the end of the hour, but that didn't matter. He would go as far as he could in that hour and wouldn't give up just because he saw that he couldn't reach the top. Well, he reached the 50th floor with only 10 minutes to go. The people were telling him not to waste his time and effort, but he was insistent that he was no quitter. He reached the 53rd floor with five minutes to go, and lo and behold, he couldn't believe his eyes. There was an elevator waiting for him. He took it up to the 100th floor within the hour and won the king's daughter as his wife. This smart man did not know that there was an elevator there, but he understood that if it was impossible to get up to the top in an hour, then why would the king make the contest? And not be that the king wanted to see who wouldn't give up just because it looked impossible. Sure enough, since he used all his potential and didn't give up, the king helped him to actually reach the top. So too, Hashem only wants each person to use his full potential and not to underestimate it, and go as far as he can go, despite the fact that it looks like it's impossible to reach the top. And as long as we do ours, Hashem will help us get to the top. I want to end off speaking about the power of tefillah, prayer. There's a famous story that had many versions and many different lessons. This version is basically what I saw on the back of an Olamenu cover, that's a periodical from Torah Masora. There was a very poor man named Yossel, the tailor from Lublin. He had a lot of debts, debts and had to marry off his daughters. I could definitely relate to that, to that situation. He had a strange dream three nights in a row that he had a treasure waiting for him near the bridge to the Imperial Palace in Prague. So he decided to go there and dig it out. When Yossel got to the bridge... There was always a guard there. Yossel was trying to figure out what to do. He kept coming back until the soldier finally asked him what he wanted. 
Yosel told the soldier the truth. He told him about his dream and asked permission to dig by the bridge. The soldier scoffed at him and said, You fool! Dreams are nonsense! I had a dream last night that there was a fortune waiting for me in the wall behind the stove of Yossel the tailor's house in Lublin. Do you think I'm foolish enough to go to his house to break down his wall? Yossel realized this must be his treasure at the bridge. He went home to Lublin and sure enough found his treasure in the wall behind the stove. Of course, one of the lessons we learned from this is that sometimes we go far away to look for salvation and answers when really it's right in front of our noses. Tefillah is a prime example. Many people go very far to get blessings from great people. This is very important and effective. The problem is we don't realize the strength and effectiveness of our very own prayers. We think we're not worthy and Hashem won't heed our prayers. We have to understand Hashem listens to anyone's sincere prayer, even if he's a very wicked person. Rav Zayda Lepstein, you should have a speedy recovery at Fuhr Shlema, relates in his Sefer Ha'oris in Bamidbar, in Pasha's Kairach, how Moshe was having a strong argument with Kairach. Kairach was scoffing at the mitzvahs of Hashem and at the words of his prophet Moshe. Moshe suggests to Kairach that they make a test. He said each of them would offer a pan of the katoras, the incense to Hashem. And the one that Hashem would choose would be the Holy One. Then Moshe turns to Hashem and says to him, Do not turn to their offering. It's quite hard to comprehend why Moshe had to pray to Hashem not to listen to Kairach. Kairach and his group were arguing with and contesting the very words of Hashem. This test of the offering would clearly show who was right. Were Moshe and his Torah right? Or Chatz v'chalila not? If so, can there be any possibility that the prayer and offering of Korach and his group would be accepted? The great Gon and Sadiq of Yeruchim of the Mir said in the name of the altar of Kelam, Rab Simcha Zizel Ziv, that Moshe Rabbeinu knew the tremendous value of prayer. David HaMelech says in Tehillim, in Ashrei, Korov Hashem Lechol Korov Hashem is close to all those that call upon Him. To all that call upon Him in truth, with sincerity. It says all, even the prayer of a wicked and despicable person, provided it is true and sincere. I illustrate this point of sincerity and truth with a common example. Working people also believe in Hashem. They realize that their sustenance really comes from Hashem. Their job is just the conduit how Hashem will provide the sustenance. They even pray three times a day in shul with the congregation to Hashem to give them sustenance. But the big test arises when there's a big business deal and it's time to pray in shul. Will his prayer to Hashem be sincere and take precedence and he will make sure to arrange it so that he could pray also, like getting up earlier or arranging the deal at a different time? Or will he put his trust in the business deal and sacrifice his prayer and shul for the deal? Even if Hashem's accepting his prayers will be misunderstood as Hashem's stamp of approval of that wicked person's heretical and false views, like by Korach, Hashem will accept it as long as it's sincere. 
Because this is the agreement he has with all of us. And Hashem will keep his words under all circumstances. This is what Moshe knew. And he was afraid that Korach's prayer would be so sincere that Hashem may accept it. That's why Moshe prayed to Hashem not to listen to Korach. From here we should learn how great is our power of prayer, especially when we pray for spiritual things. If we would realize the power of prayer that we have in our hands, our whole world would be different. How much trouble and pain we would prevent with prayer. The Gemara and Yavamis, Samach 64a, brings Rav Yitzchak, who said that our forefathers were barren because Hashem was waiting for their prayers. We see it not like we think that we pray because a trouble arises. Rather, Hashem wants us to pray, and that's why the trouble arises. Rabbi Epstein further relates a beautiful medrash in Devarim, chapter 11, paragraph 10, that further enlightens us as to the great power of prayer. It says, when Moshe prayed to be allowed to enter Eretz Israel, Hashem swore that he wouldn't allow him. Moshe kept praying incessantly to be let in. The Medrash describes what Hashem did at that moment. He announced by every gate that they should not accept Moshe's prayer and not bring it up to Hashem because the decree has already been signed. Hashem called and said to the ministering angels, go down quickly and lock all the gates because the voice of Moshe's prayer is overpowering. Moshe's prayer was like a sword that slashes and cuts and is unstoppable. Till here is the Medrash. But Epstein asked, why did Hashem mean, what did Hashem mean quickly closing the gates? If Hashem didn't want to accept the prayer, then he won't accept it, even if the gates were open. We see from here that Hashem created the intrinsic power of tefillah, that it automatically will be accepted unless an opposing action is done to close the gates and not to accept it. Prayer slices through the heavens. Even more so, sometimes we find that even if the gates are closed, Hashem accepts prayers. The Medrash in Devarim, chapter 2, paragraph 13, describes how the wicked king Menashe was praying, and the angels were stuffing up the windows to prevent his prayer from coming up. But Hashem dug a tunnel from under his heavenly throne of Anna and accepted his prayer and returned him to his kingdom in Jerusalem. Hashem should help us realize this valuable weapon and tool that we have, and use it for the right things. Sometimes, though, we want to repent and pray and cry, but we feel, since we've fallen so low, we're so unworthy, we're so wicked and full of sins, Hashem doesn't even want to look at us. Let me reassure you, there's nothing further from the truth than this misconception. It's just the Yitzhahari, the evil inclination's trick of discouraging us from repenting, praying, and weeping. The truth is that no matter how bad we are, Hashem is waiting patiently for us to return and cry out to Him. I will mention two points that will prove this. We say in the Shabbos morning prayers, there's a Psalm number 34, Lamed Dalad, in one verse, number 16, we say, The eyes of Hashem are toward the righteous, and His ears to their cry. The next passage talks about the evildoers. The face of Hashem is against the evildoers. To cut off their memory from earth. 
The first Pasuk discusses the righteous. And the second one discusses the evildoers. Then the next Pasuk says, Tzoraku! They cried out, the Hashem Shomea, and Hashem listens, and from all their troubles he rescues them. Now the question is, who is this pronoun they cried out referring to? To the righteous or the evildoers? The pronoun they, in the last parts of, according to many commentaries, the Eben Ezra and the Matsudas David, refers to the evildoers themselves that were mentioned in the previous verse. Even though they are evildoers, and Hashem wants to cut off their memory from earth, yet if they return to Hashem and cry out to Hashem, then Hashem will listen. The second point is a beautiful story from the Sefer Tuvich Yabiu, a collection of Musa thoughts and stories from Rabbi Yitzhak Zilberstein, the Rabbi Ramat Ochanan. In volume 2, page 286, he cites the words of the Chazanish about Tefillah. The Chazanish writes that Tefillah is a step of strength to every person. There is no tefillah that comes back empty-handed. There is no word of supplication and appeasement that a Jew utters from his mouth that will not have its effect. It could help for today, maybe tomorrow, this year, or after many years. It could work for the one who prays, or maybe for one of his descendants. This should be ingrained in the knowledge of every Jew. Then Rabbi Zilberstein brings the following related story. In Yerushalayim, there's a certain Balchuva, a repentant Jew who became religious many years ago. Since then, he has succeeded tremendously in becoming a true God-fearing Jew. He also has tremendous success in all his undertakings, including the organizing of many well-attended shiurim. This fellow, whose name is Rabbi Hyman, recently revealed the cause of his success. And Rav Zilberstein advises that we should engrave the story on our hearts so we can learn and understand the great power of tefillah. When Ben-Gurion was Prime Minister of Israel, the Minister of Education was Zalman Oren, who admired and praised Ben-Gurion immensely. Oren was not a religious Jew, but his wife had some traditional Jewish upbringing. She tried to make a Jewish home, and she lit the Shabbos candles. She also realized the power of prayer, and she would pray that our children should become great people. Since our husband always would relate to her, his admiration and the great qualities of Ben-Gurion, her prayers were that her children should become great like Ben-Gurion. One day there was a famous meeting between Ben-Gurion and the Chazanish in the Chazanish's house in Ben-Abrak. After the meeting, when Ben-Gurion returned to his office and his friends, he related to Zalman Oren about the greatness of the Chazanish he even said he saw on him the countenance of an angel. Oren then told his wife about the great impact that Kazarnish made on his boss, Ben-Gurion. She listened to his words attentively, so much so that she decided then and there that from now on she would pray that her children should grow up and become as great as the Kazarnish. After all, if Ben-Gurion, who her husband prays so much, if he himself prayed the Chazanish and said he was like an angel, then she would go straight to the source. I, concluded Rabbi Hyman, am the grandson of Zalman Oren. And the prayers of my grandmother, despite the fact that she wasn't one of the 36 righteous women of the generation, had its effect after many years. It brought me close to Torah and Nitzvah, 
and gave me the power of success. From this, the story, from this story we can learn that prayer is accepted even though the one who is praying may not be so worthy. May we learn and internalize all these lessons and it should be a source for us to merit to be signed and sealed for a good year. He said he had to get out of there so then three weeks later when the, uh, some trucks were sent to get 150 people to work they got on the trucks they didn't care where they were going but it, they just had to get out the third and final can- special schuss of speaking for the guys I hope that these will be words from the heart and that they will enter yours many of the things I will say you've probably heard already but as you know it's not enough to know but one must also internalize the lessons that he learns this will help him to live his life according to these lessons the way to internalize is to constantly go over the same point many times. Rav Mordechai Friedlander Shlita, the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivas Or Chadash, once apologized for reiterating a certain point by telling a parable. He said it is more effective if you knock one nail in ten times than knocking ten nails in each one time. Rav Chaim Shmulevitz writes of a very effective way to merit a good year. In his Sichot Musa, in the Hebrew edition, the year 5732, page 141, it's all you, the first 